Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you. Whatever time of day it is in your part of the U.S., I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the Mod Pod. Were you in Boston last week for Academy? We were. What a great turnout. It was nice to see so many faces in person and to talk to many of you. If you were there and we didn't have a chance to connect, or you weren't there and you'd like to share some feedback, just send it our way at kroman, that's K-R-O-M-A-N, at bmctoday.com. Otherwise, there will always be future opportunities at next year's meetings. Alright then, on to our episode. In the first of two articles we have on tap, we're going to hear about vision screening and U.S. population health, specifically why comprehensive eye examinations remain the best approach to improving population health. And there's no better authority to walk us through this topic than Lori Latowski-Grover, who is Director at the Center for Eye and Health Outcomes and Visiting Scientist at the Southern College of Optometry in Memphis, Tennessee. Let's have a listen. Where do the U.S. government's health care recommendations originate, and how valuable are they? Uh, these are important questions with everything that's going on in health policy, and it's important to understand where recommendations for clinical guidelines, preventive health screenings, and age-related procedures come from. Um, these are key examples of guidelines that fall under the purview of the U.S. PSTF, known as the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Evidence is essential for creating trustworthy clinical guidelines and encouraging widespread adoption of national preventive and primary health measures is a primary focus of USPSTF. Over the past two decades, the value of primary eye care to overall health has gained strength. Momentum for access to comprehensive eye care is recognized by a greater diversity of healthcare stakeholders as fundamental to improving the nation's health. And doctors of optometry, as the nation's frontline primary eye care providers, deliver the vast majority of needed evidence-based eye care identified in the 2010 Affordable Care Act as, quote, essential to children's health. The USPSTF was created in 1984 as an independent group of national experts in prevention and evidence-based medicine that works to improve the health of all Americans. Uh, they focus on making evidence-based recommendations about clinical preventive services such as screenings, counseling services, or preventive medications available to the public. At the request of the U.S. Congress, the USPSTF seeks to protect patients and ensure that clinicians receive high-quality recommendations by outlining those best methods uh, for developing clinical practice guidelines. In short, the USPSTF aims to provide clinicians and patients with the best available information on the best available and current science of prevention so that all can make informed healthcare decisions. 
So a little bit about how the USPSTF came about. Uh, back in 1989, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, or AHRQ, was authorized by Congress to provide scientific, technical, administrative, and dissemination support to the USPSTF. The 1998 Public Health Service Act and the 2010 Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, or what we know as the ACA, each instructed AHRQ to provide this support, which includes assisting with day-to-day operations, producing evidence reports, ensuring the use of USPSTF methods, disseminating recommendations, and appointing of new USPSTF members. The Department of Health and Human Services, known as HHS, also supports the USPSTF. However, the USPSTF functions as an independent body and does not require approval from ARC or HHS. The 16 members of the USPSTF, most of whom are practicing clinicians, have backgrounds in primary care or preventive medicine, and these include family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, obstetrics and gynecology, nursing, and behavioral health. Existing vision screening data uh, remain disparate and fragmented due to subjective methodologies and interpretations. And for more than a century, no universally accepted definition or recognized process of vision screening among clinicians, researchers, healthcare professionals, states, school districts, service organizations, and other entities that aim to screen has emerged. A prime example of this long-standing confusion is how the USPSTF refers to its findings on amblyopia screening for three- to five-year-old children as, quote, vision screening, unquote, when this recommendation is specifically limited to a single disease, amblyopia, seen in a narrow segment of children, those that are age three to five. This suggests, as the American Optometric Association has previously requested, that the USPSTF should rename its recommendation for, quote, vision screening, unquote, to amblyopia screening in children three to five years old to best reflect the scope of evidence and findings. According to the USPSTF, more research is required to understand the effects of vision screening on health and determine if an evidence-based approach to screening can be found that actually shows positive impacts on health. In addition, there is a need for studies and additional research that examine the benefits and harms of vision screening and treatment in children younger than three years and the long-term benefits and harms of preschool vision screening on health outcomes such as quality of life, school performance, developmental trajectory, and functioning. Furthermore, evidence on vision screening in older adults is also lacking. It's also of poor quality, conflicting, and the balance of benefits and harms cannot be determined by USPSTF. 
It is important to note that although the USPSTF concluded with moderate certainty that amblyopia screening in children three to five years old has moderate net benefit as compared with no screening, there was no comparison of the value of screening relative to eye examination. The USPSTF defines moderate evidence as sufficient to determine the effects of the preventive service on health outcomes, but that confidence in the estimate is constrained by many factors and that as more information becomes available, the magnitude or direction of the observed effect could change, and this change may be large enough to alter the conclusion. Care must be taken in promoting vision screening as beneficial because it is not recognized by the USPSTF as a population health intervention of value for infants and children of all ages, apart from amblyopia screening for children three to five years of age. The health effects of vision screening versus no screening will remain unknown until the USPSTF can identify substantive evidence to fill gaps and reevaluate their recommendations. Health screening recommendations are determined by weighing measurable benefits and harms substantiated by evidence. This analysis is how population health recommendations gain national endorsement. There are many instances in which the USPSTF has recommended against a service where evidence for the service was lacking or where research showing harms outweighing benefits resulted in USPSTF modifying its recommendations to reflect new findings. Because of the lack of documented benefits of vision screening and possible risks, support for vision screening at the population level remains unsubstantiated. This is really critically important because implementation of vision screening could potentially harm health especially due to delayed interventions for missed diseases and conditions that are identified with comprehensive eye examination. Regarding the USPSTF recommendation for amblyopia screening in children three to five years of age, recall that amblyopia is one of many eye diseases, along with more than 270 systemic diseases that can be identified through a comprehensive eye exam. Many other national entities recognize the importance of primary care to overall health, and they recognize that avoidance of comprehensive eye examination has been shown to delay treatment that can prevent negative health impacts. So from a public health perspective, note that an effective health screen must be valid, sensitive, specific, and reliable. It must accurately represent targeted health outcomes for a group of individuals and properly assess the distribution of outcomes within the targeted group. Without more substantive data on vision screening, there is limited opportunity to identify targeted health problems or conditions for intervention. Aside from USPSTF recommended amblyopia screening in children three to five years of age, Vision screening does not merit the same presumption of value that the health community affords other USPSTF recommendations um, for screenings. That And these other screenings include mammography, colonoscopy, and screening for hypertension. 
So in the absence of official guidelines on vision screening, doctors of optometry and clinical teams must continue to advocate for the visual and overall health of children as a significant public health concern. Due to the prevalence of eye disorders in children and adults, other national stakeholders, including the American Public Health Association, the National Eye Institute, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services have all voiced support for comprehensive eye examination and for prescribed treatments such as glasses and contact lenses as essential to health. In addition, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, or NASM, concluded in 2016 that eye examination is the gold standard in clinical care to most accurately identify and diagnose vision problems. Contemporary eye care is safe, timely, effective, equitable, and patient-centered. Delivery of care to infants and children is also robustly taught in optometry school curricula and in residency training. As frontline primary eye care providers, optometrists deliver the majority of evidence-based eye care identified by the 2010 Affordable Care Act as essential to children's health. So importantly, when we strive for health equity, we know health disparities must be eliminated, especially for the most vulnerable children. So until future vision screening research can demonstrate findings of evidence-based population health benefits that outweigh the risks, especially when compared to the recognized value of comprehensive primary optometric care. Policies and positions that promote vision screening remain questionable approaches to achieving acknowledged, desirable population health outcomes. Dr. Grover gives us a lot of really good information to process, and even more is included in the print version. So if you want to access that information, visit modernod.com and find her article, Vision Screening and U.S. Population Health, under the October issue. Ready for something more clinical in nature? Perhaps something with a plot twist? Coming right up. Brandon Runyon, an optometrist at Virginia Eye Consultants in Norfolk, Virginia, will present a case that taught him that sometimes the obvious findings lead you down the wrong diagnostic path. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. A healthy nine-year-old girl presented to an urgent care clinic with a red, tender, and swollen right upper lid. She was prescribed a 10-day course of hydroxyzine and cephalexin at the time by the urgent care provider. About 10 days into the course of her antibiotics, the edema had not resolved, so they sought care with another eye care provider, which was not myself. The eye care provider at that time advised the family that they should complete the course of treatment and return if there was no improvement after about an additional week. The patient didn't return for care for about another month when she initially presented to my clinic with ongoing right upper eyelid swelling, and it had now been present for approximately two months. The patient reported no pain or double vision, and she was afebrile. 
Her medical history was unremarkable, and she had no known chronic or recurrent ocular problems. Her uncorrected visual acuity measured 20-20 in both eyes. Pupils were equal, round, and reactive to light and bright conditions, measuring 3 millimeters in the right eye and 3 millimeters in the left. However, anisocoria was noted in the dark, measuring 4.5 millimeters in the right eye and 5.5 millimeters in the left. Additionally, I noted a possible dilation lag in the right eye. There was no relative afferent pupillary defect observed, and extraocular muscle movements were full and without notable restriction in either eye. External examination of the right eye revealed moderate ptosis of the right upper lid with subtle serous edema. Further lid evaluation showed that levator function was impacted and reduced to 9 millimeters in the right eye compared to 14 millimeters in the left eye. All other anterior and posterior segment right eye findings were within normal limits. Examination of the anterior and posterior segment of the left eye was completely unremarkable. Photos of the patient's affected eye on her grandmother's mobile phone taken at the time of her presentation to the urgent care clinic suggested that the condition had resembled either a preceptal cellulitis or allergic blepharoconjunctivitis, so I completely understood the course of treatment at the initial presentation. Given the ptosis and the anisocoria findings, I was immediately concerned for a possible subacute Horner syndrome. However, her significantly reduced levator function did not really align well with that diagnosis. Was it an incidental finding caused by the presence of subtle edema, or did this localize the lesion to the orbit? The child and family denied anhydrosis, and I was able to confirm the presence of bilateral hydrosis and flushing by asking the child to walk outdoors for an extended period and then return to my exam room. There was no history of chest or neck surgery for the patient. Given the pupil findings, a shared decision was made with the family to urgently evaluate possible etiologies via laboratory studies and neuroimaging. This was necessary to avoid delaying a potentially fatal diagnosis as my clinic did not have cocaine or apiclonidine drops to confirm Horner syndrome. An MRI of the head, neck, and chest with and without contrast was ordered and obtained within two days. A complete blood count was obtained to evaluate for infection and hematologic cancers. Because neuroblastoma has been implicated as a common cause of acquired pediatric Horner syndrome, a 24-hour urine catecholamine test was also ordered. However, the sample was not returned and therefore the result was never obtained. The results of the complete blood count, MRI of the neck, and MRI of the chest were non-contributory. However, the MRI of the head was quite alarming. Neuroimaging confirmed the presence of a mass in the superior right orbit with suspected involvement of the superior rectus and superior oblique muscles. Complex signal characteristics were noted in addition to the appearance of bony expansion or possible destruction of the medial posterior orbit. According to the radiology report, this was most concerning for aggressive etiologies such as rhabdomyosarcoma or venous lymphatic malformations, and it was felt that inflammatory etiologies were unlikely due to the lack of retrobulbar fat edema. A CT scan of the orbits was recommended to further evaluate characteristics of the mass if clinically necessary. 
Management plans were put in place before calling the mother with the MRI results. The child's pediatrician was immediately contacted to discuss the findings and the urgent need for elevation of care. It was apparent that the child would need a surgical biopsy and involvement of pediatric oncology given the concern for aggressive cancerous etiologies. The pediatrician was immensely helpful in coordinating care thanks to her close working relationship with a large pediatric hospital in the area. I drafted a referral letter summarizing my examination findings and forwarded it to the pediatric oncologist along with the MRI results. The patient's mother obtained a copy of the MRI images on a disc to carry by hand to the hospital. When the patient reported to the pediatric emergency department the following day, she was expeditiously admitted to the oncology ward for initial evaluation. The attending oncologist consulted a pediatric craniofacial surgeon and a pediatric general surgeon, and collectively they formulated an extensive care plan. The patient was taken to the OR and had multiple procedures while under anesthesia. She had a bone marrow biopsy, she had a biopsy of the orbital mass, and she also had a central venous port placed in anticipation of the need for chemotherapy. Shortly after the procedure was completed, the pathology results were obtained. They had been sent directly to the pathology lab for a stat read so that the results could be obtained quickly. The biopsy results showed presence of inflammatory cells consistent with a diagnosis of orbital inflammatory myositis. No cancerous cells were identified on the specimens and aggressive etiologies had been excluded. As a result, the central venous port was immediately removed. I'm not actually sure that the child had even left the operating room at this point. Once the diagnosis had been confirmed, the patient was immediately started on 20 milligrams of oral prednisone daily, and her condition rapidly improved. Further blood work and chest x-rays were ordered to screen for sarcoidosis, granulomatosis with polyangitis, and other autoimmune disorders. All laboratory testing came back negative. The child was discharged home on oral prednisone under the direction of the oncologist a few days later. Her condition resolved after approximately two weeks and a taper of the oral prednisone was initiated. Surprisingly, her condition recurred about one month after the prednisone taper, so she was placed on mycophenolate mofetil, or Celsept, for chronic immunosuppression. She continued the Celsept for six months after the initial recurrence and was subsequently tapered off the medication without additional recurrences. Nonspecific orbital inflammation, or NOI, previously referred to as orbital pseudotumor, is an umbrella term for inflammatory masses of the orbit. Although nonspecific orbital inflammation is the third most common orbital mass in adults, a 2008 review article of reports found only 68 cases of pediatric nonspecific orbital inflammation dating back to the 1950s. The most common presenting symptoms in both adults and children include pain, diplopia, extraocular muscle restriction, and proptosis. In one case series, 21% of pediatric cases were reported to have had pupillary involvement. Diffuse or localized nonspecific orbital inflammation presentations have been reported with inflammation possibly affecting the lacrimal gland, extraocular muscles, as in this case, uvea, and or the cavernous sinus. Although 
Adult nonspecific orbital inflammation often presents unilaterally. Pediatric nonspecific orbital inflammation frequently presents bilaterally with additional presence of uveitis and optic disc edema. Because of the variable presentation and overlap with other disease entities, utilization of neuroimaging modalities such as CT or MRI of the orbits is necessary to exclude malignant, infectious, and other etiologies. Biopsy is indicated for atypical cases prior to initiation of immunosuppressant medications. The pathogenesis of nonspecific orbital inflammation is not well understood, but the disease has been associated with various autoimmune conditions, including systemic lupus, thyroid disease, sarcoidosis, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, myasthenia gravis, ankylosing spondylitis, and others. Recently, immunoglobulin G4-related disease has been implicated in 17-60% to 60% of adult cases of nonspecific orbital inflammation as an etiology, but incidence and prevalence in the pediatric population has not been widely studied. Because of these systemic associations, a systemic workup is indicated for nonspecific orbital inflammation in either adults or children. Various therapies have been successful for treatment of nonspecific orbital inflammation in both children and adults. However, oral corticosteroids are generally the first-line therapy. Use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, systemic immunomodulatory therapies, and radiation therapy have also been suggested, especially for chronic or recalcitrant disease. In some cases, even surgical resection has been indicated. In daily clinical practice, we often see patients with atypical clinical features or with signs and symptoms that do not follow the expected clinical course. Sometimes explaining the constellation of clinical findings in difficult cases can be challenging. These cases teach us to critically analyze our findings and data, widen our differential diagnoses, and involve other medical specialists when the waters become too murky. Although the need for eye care providers to order neuroimaging for pediatric patients does not arise frequently, cases such as this one illustrate both the value and drawbacks of neuroimaging in making a definitive diagnosis. The case also demonstrates how a biopsy can drastically alter both the course of treatment and prognosis in some situations. have a patient case with a plot twist of your own? If so, and you'd like to share any lessons learned from the experience, let us know at kroman at bmctoday.com. Well, that's it for this episode. We figured we'd keep it short for you this time, as you probably have your plates full of the usual everyday tasks, plus holiday preparation is mostly underway. We'll be back with a new episode next month, so make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts and click on the notification button to be alerted when the newest episodes become available. Until next time, be well.